Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen. Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer, an insurance recovery podcast. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of Lowenstein Sandler's Insurance Recovery Group. Today, we're going to talk about an insurance product that has truly transformed the M&A world over the past several years, reps and warranties insurance. While reps and warranty insurance has been around for decades, it began to gain popularity over the last six to seven years in the United States with a hockey stick trajectory as private equity firms and strategic buyers increasingly purchase reps and warranty insurance, and as many new insurers jump into this market. We used to tell our buyer side clients that reps and warranty insurance was a way to stand out in the auction process. But today, the reality is that reps and warranties insurance is required in a bid just to stay competitive. Traditionally, in M&A deals, sellers often had to stand behind the reps and warranties that they made about the company. They did so by agreeing to indemnify the buyer and to put a hefty escrow up for losses related to any uh, breaches or inaccuracies in the reps and warranties that they made. But reps and warranty insurance changes that dynamic. Reps and warranty insurance is designed to largely and sometimes entirely take on the seller's indemnification obligations. Now, in reps and warranty deals, sellers only have to put up a limited escrow, usually about half a percent of the target enterprise value for a limited period of time, often a year. In many rep and warranty deals, the seller doesn't have to provide any escrow or indemnification. Today, we're going to talk about the current state of play in the rep and warranty insurance market, how it's changed in a COVID-19 world, and where it seems to be going. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Michael Wakefield, the Transaction Liability Practice Group Leader from CAC Specialty, and my partner, Eric Jesse of Lowenstein Sandler's Insurance Recovery Group. Michael is an insurance broker who has extensive experience placing insurance solutions, including reps and warranties and M&A deals. Eric works on behalf of buyers in M&A deals to negotiate policy forms, narrow exclusions, and guide buyers through the R&W underwriting process. Together, they have extensive experience on the front lines of R&W insurance in a variety of deals, industries, and interfacing with reps and warranties insurers. So with that, let's jump in. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, Eric. Glad to have you today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Glad to be here. Thanks. All right. Let's start out, uh, and I'll throw this open as a jump ball. Whoever wants to grab it first can go. When you're advising buyers on who to select as your reps and warranties insurers, what are some of the factors that you give consideration to? So when we're advising buyers on the insurers that they should select as part of this process, because the broker will go out and often get a number of different quotes from different carriers, we want to understand what their underwriting process is. Are they uh, responsive? Uh, are they timely? Are they commercial and policy negotiations? And, and particularly today, and this is probably something Michael can talk about as well, R&W insurers are, are very, very busy. And so we want to make sure that they can close a deal on time and keep pace with the deal. Another important factor that I look to is just that I look for carriers that aren't going to sweat the small stuff on diligence, that they really can put things in perspective and really focus on the, the, the key items in a deal that, that matter. 
And then, of course, a key component is do uh, the do the insurers pay claims? And last year, you know, we at Lowenstein conducted a survey of approximately 150 market participants to really answer that question of do carriers pay claims? And overall, the results back were that they do pay claims, but it does take work. But we do want to know what the carrier's reputation is in the market for, for paying claims. So, Michael, let me throw this one to you. Has the market stabilized in terms of the number of insurance players that are willing to write this type of coverage, or are you still seeing a lot of new entrants to this particular space? It really has not stabilized. We see new entrants. Uh, We have two coming on, I think, in the next six months. We had one come on and then exit in the last six months. And over the last year or two, have had a number of new players. And so that that kind of comes back to your original question. And I would add a few things. I agree with all of Eric's points on what we consider when we look for underwriters for a particular deal. But I would add, one thing to think about is, are you dealing with a managing general agent or underwriter who underwrites on behalf of insurance carriers? Or are you dealing with an insurer itself who has an underwriting team in-house? There are arguments on both sides. I'm not necessarily saying one's better than the other, but there are pros and cons in each direction. As far as the process goes, a lot of the MGAs and MGUs in particular will have a call without underwriting counsel on the call. And some of the insurers will do that. That seems like a small thing. You have a two-hour call that's the sort of the core of the underwriting process. And whether outside counsel for the underwriter is on or not, it seems to be a small thing. But a lot of times deals go more smoothly when they're not. I don't know why that is, but uh, it's something we think about. And one more factor I'd throw out is think about if you're building a large tower, the credibility that the lead underwriter has with excess markets to have excess markets follow form to underwriting and coverage. Some insurers have more credibility than others uh, in that sense. So, uh, but uh, to circle back, Linda, to your question, uh, the market is very, it's, it feels volatile. And we as a broker, that's a, it's a big part of what we stay up at night thinking about is, are we going to place risk of our clients with an underwriter that's not going to be here when the claim comes in. We're very comfortable and confident that the insurers, and most of these are MGAs, MGUs that are kind of the ins and outs of the space. We're very comfortable and confident that the insurers are going to be there in the long run because they're large insurance companies. But you want somebody who has the reputational risk, if there's a claim, to know that if they don't deal fairly, their business will not continue as much as it has in the past. And those factors all come into play. So you know, we think through a lot, a lot of factors, as you can tell. Yeah, and I agree. And it's something that we constantly counsel our clients on. Getting the insurance policy is one thing, but getting it with a carrier that has the intention, as Eric said a couple of minutes ago, with the plan to pay the claim, pretty important. And so we do reinforce that message that who you're insuring with matters uh, as much as the words on the page. But let's let's uh, transition now into what are some of the changes that have taken place? We're about a year into the pandemic. Um, and Michael, you've noted that the market's a little bit volatile. What are some of the key changes uh, that you've seen over the last year? And if you've got your crystal ball polished up, what's what's on the horizon for the next six months in this space? Well, I can't promise to have a crystal ball, uh, <laughs> but I will say uh, pricing is the headline. And there's a reason for that. Pricing is significantly higher today for any given deal than it was a year ago, for sure. So a year ago, we were in the middle of a lull in M&A due to the COVID pandemic. Um, now, 
we've had this extended run of the busiest time the market has ever seen. And it's lasted from about last fall until, I mean, literally today. I still, you know, every day I feel like I hear an underwriter say, we had more submissions today than we've ever had before. Again, that I believe that the drive in higher pricing is largely due to that really high demand. There's an argument that higher pricing is justified by claims experiences of the underwriters who've been doing this a long time. That's a little bit TBD when you look around the market. There are a lot of underwriters who don't have those heavy claims books. or And the question becomes whether different underwriters are going to have different claims experiences or whether a mature book of business necessarily has claims that justifies high rates. So I think the headline, again, is the pricing. The question we have there is whether that's merely a function of demand or a function of claims experiences. Along with the demand comes underwriters have a little bit more leverage to restrict terms. And so I think we have a little bit of an underwriter's market. And, I, and that's my point. I'll yeah. So let me, let me throw it over to Eric, because you have eyes on these policies on a regular basis. What are some of the changes that you've seen specifically related to COVID and either restriction in terms or new exclusions, perhaps? What, what are you seeing there? Yeah. So One thing we saw in March, April, May of last year is that COVID-19 exclusions were commonplace on these policies, and they could often be very broad, just applying to anything that relates to the company's operations, its supply chain, its employment relationships. And what we've seen since then is that those exclusions are becoming much more relaxed. There are certain carriers in the market that still insist on having uh, broad exclusions, but we find that there are a number of carriers that are willing to negotiate those exclusions or keep an open mind on them. And you know, today, you know, we're seeing either policies that have no COVID exclusions, hopefully, or the broadest exclusion we're seeing is is a relatively narrow one, which just relates to the trans, you know, the failure to prevent the transmission of of COVID to employees or or people that are on site. Another impact of COVID that we've seen that seems to be here to stay is that there are exclusions for PPP loans and other CARES Act relief or grants that companies have received. So those exclusions seem to be staying and uh, are becoming part of uh, what's standard on these policies. So, Michael, you mentioned that there's competition. You mentioned that the underwriters are super overworked. What are some of the hot button issues that are coming up through the underwriting process other than COVID-19? And and if I'm um, a policyholder looking to potentially get into this market, what are some of the things I better make sure I have buttoned up before I get on the phone call with the underwriter for the first time for my deal? That's a great question. And I would go back to mention one thing Eric said earlier, which is uh, making sure the underwriter has capacity to get a deal done on time. My job as a broker in in a lot of ways, and and obviously I would say the job is way more expansive than this, but one of the main things we have to do as a broker is to make sure that rep and warranty insurance doesn't impact deal timing. Um, And so our job these days in a busy market is largely to uh, make sure the underwriter knows that we're going to do this on this timeline. And I know you're busy, but this deal is important. It needs to be your first priority. So that's that's a small aside. I I would say... A big trend that I'm watching closely, and I think everybody in the industry is, are the edits for policy purposes only that underwriters are proposing to purchase agreements. And so if you know rep and warranty insurance, you know the coverage follows the reps and warranties in the purchase agreement. And for a lot of years, if I went back probably two years to the quotes we got, 
you wouldn't see any comments in a quote on the purchase agreement. And now when we find a handful of leaders, leading underwriters bidding for a deal, we'll go back to them with a draft purchase agreement and say, please update, refresh your terms in accordance with this purchase agreement. And we'll sometimes get a page or more of for policy purposes edits. And so, for example, they'll say in Rep A, we're going to knowledge qualify it, even if you don't knowledge qualify it in the purchase agreement. And that I find to be a little bit troubling. Uh, The underwriter's view is purchase agreements have gotten so buyer-friendly that we have to do this to protect ourselves. I get concerned that what they're actually saying is we've had claims experiences and we want to not have those claims experiences anymore. Ooh, um, you're, so you're a good cynic to join us on. Don't take no for an answer here. You're speaking no, no. our language. <laughs> well, I come from your background too. I was a, <laughs> uh, an insurance recovery attorney before being a broker. So, so I know I could talk about that for a long time, but I'd like to hear Eric's thoughts on it as well. Yeah. You know, on, on the rewrites, I call those the hidden exclusions. And one thing that buyers need to keep in mind is a lot of times the buyer will try and negotiate from the seller an indemnity for R&W excluded matters. And they'll just look to the exclusion section of the policy to identify what those are. But also they need to keep in mind that they're including any significant rewrites to, to, to these reps to include there. You know, another issue we see carriers focusing on is, is valuation. A lot of times, even before or after the quote is issued, but before the carrier is willing to sign up, they want to understand how the deal was valued and whether a multiple was used, whether comparables were used. And I think that's because just of the claim severity that a number of carriers are experiencing, because if there's a financial statement breach claim that's going to be made, we as the the policyholder and buyer advocate are going to argue that 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 law should be a multiple of of the damages. So that's another increasing area of focus. All right, so let's get our, our crystal ball polished up and project out what are the next couple of years in the reps and warranty insurance market going to look like? What are some of the trends that you're going to expect to see? Michael, why don't you go ahead and give it to us first? One thing I'm going to watch is whether the market's claims experiences reflect the current insurer's claims experiences that have those mature books of business, like we mentioned a minute ago. I think there's a big question in a new insurance market of whether this kind of insurance necessarily has a certain loss ratio or whether there actually are better ways to underwrite this kind of business, whether that's picking clients, picking industries, picking brokers. Haha, <laughs> I'm joking. But, but you know what I mean? The, Shameless are, plug received. Got it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Right, right. Thanks. But I'm very curious about this because this we're in this demand moment where we have new entrants. But then we have established players who are saying to be sustainable, we have to do things a little bit differently. I wonder if the new players have some secret sauce that's gonna, that, that is actually going to result in a different long-term result. And I think that as those new players have maturing books of business, we're going to see some really interesting things. Yeah. But as we know, new players taking that leap of faith, because as Eric mentioned before, yeah. the number one question we get from clients at the front end of this process is, but are they going to pay the claim? And it's a bit of a tough sell for those new entrants to yeah. to comfortably say, yeah, go ahead and, and go with them. So Eric, yeah. what do you see? We've got just a couple minutes yeah. left. I've got one more question up my sleeve I got to pull out. So you know, w- one thing that concerns me going into the future is that as reps and warranty insurance becomes even more popular and more standardized in deals, that the insurers are just going to feel that they can take a uh, much more difficult position on claims. I think to date, uh, because the rep and warranty insurance 
um, community is relatively small and reputations matter. Uh, you know, carriers, I think, by and large, are are being commercial because if they are difficult on claims, word is going to get around. But as you know, the the, uh, the the demand for the policy increases. My concern is that R and W insurers are going to start to behave like other insurers that we often have uh, disputes with. All right, great. So I've got just a couple of minutes left here, and I did want to circle back. I was going to ask this question earlier, Michael, when you were talking about how busy those underwriters are. I'm curious to know how much of that is being driven by the SPAC craziness that we're hearing about out there in the marketplace. Has rep and warranty started to intersect with those SPAC deals? If not, is that something you see on the horizon? It has not yet, really. There's a lot of talk about it. I think the I, I know that the number of placements is still very low. So it's not the SPAC craziness that's driving the current demand, but rep and warranty insurance can be a great tool in a de-SPAC transaction. And there are some nuances to that that we could fill a whole nother podcast with. But in short, it could be coming, but it takes some some specialized knowledge of the SPAC space and how underwriters are going to react to some particular nuances within those deals. Eric, any thoughts on uh, any parting shots on the SPACs? Yeah. So on SPACs, you know, I think that um, you know, SPACs uh, or reps and warranty insurance can you know, play a role in SPACs. I think for much of the same reason, it plays a role in M&A deals because it allows for limited or no stellar indemnity. There's reduced time spent negotiating the claims and, uh, excuse me, negotiating the reps and indemnity package and avoiding the need to assert breach claims against the the holdover management. So certainly something on the horizon. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Michael and Eric for sharing their experience in the reps and warranty insurance space. I'm convinced that this is an emerging area. It's not going anywhere. And you're both going to stay plenty busy and we'll be uh, very happy to have you come back and give us a review of what's going on in uh, six months or so. So thanks for joining us today on Don't Take No for an Answer and we'll see you next time. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com podcasts or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.